I'm Steve Vibronix, and this is the Life in Dub podcast, talking to people who live their lives in dub and reggae. Episode number 16. Welcome to the 16th Life in Dub podcast. I hope everyone is well out there and surviving okay. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Remember that if you have any suggestions or comments, you can always email me at vibronics at gmail.com and you can visit the podcast website, lifeindub.com, where you can listen back to any of the older episodes. Don't forget to tell people about Life in Dub and to help spread the word. This week, I want to talk about baselines and more specifically, the way they can be timeless, lasting generation after generation. I talked a while back about how Roots Reggae is pretty timeless stuff. Well, the music foundation, the bass line of each Roots Reggae tune has this amazing ability to still sound relevant and fresh years and years after it was first played. Right now, I'm getting ready to re-release some old Vibronics productions. And one of the bass lines on one of the tracks is now 25 years old. That's older than many younger dub fans and some Life in Dub podcast listeners. Now, as well as being a sign of me getting really old, to me it's amazing that a good bass line is so timeless. It makes me think of some of my favourite bass lines. Tunes like Declaration of Rights and Drum Song were all written before I was even born, not to mention composed on a Caribbean island thousands of miles away from the UK. Yet they still, to me at least, sound totally fresh, vital, relevant. They could have been made up last week. And when I see young selectors playing these kind of tunes with bass lines that are now more than 50 years old, I find it amazing how the simplicity of a classic bass line can just last so long and can be such an enduring force. So I say, power to those frequencies and long live the mighty bass line. This week, my guest is Steve Jawaria. This was a transatlantic hookup with Steve over the ocean in the USA and me in the Dub Cupboard studio here in Leicester. Jar Warrior will be known to many for the classic releases working with legends like Prince Allah, Horace Andy, but Jar Warrior was active long before these records came out. And in this interview, he talks about attending sound system dances in the 1970s and 80s, about building his own sound system, as well as tales of being at the forefront of things we now take for granted, like internet record shopping. So enough of me, let's get on with the interview. Well, Jar Warrior, Welcome to the Life in Dub podcast. Yeah, greetings, Steve. Give thanks for having me. Hope yourself and all the listeners are staying safe and keeping well in these very strange times. Well, that's it. We're in Leicester, you know, still under lockdown, so it's all, all crazy stuff. Yeah, for sure. But listen, what I'm doing is um, I'm starting the podcast with the same question for all the guests, and it's just a kind of way to kind of kickstart it, um, kickstart the proceedings. Um, and I'm asking everybody to name a track that's like that's that's kind of changed things for them or been really influential something that really kind of helped them turn a corner or something and I was wondering if you've got an example of something like that you want to share yeah I do um one tune which was really influential for me and you have to bear in mind I heard it when it came out. People may not think it's so special nowadays, but the big one that did it for me was the Augustus Pablo dub version of um, Jacob Miller's Baby I Love You So. It was called King Tubby's Meets the Rockers Uptown. And I heard it when it was released on the John Peel radio show, probably maybe 76, 77, and it totally blew me away. It still sounds incredible now, that tune. like The, the drums and the timbali, the echoes, it's really like it's the mixing everything I, I mean just about every track on that album does it for me it's my favourite dub album of all time 
but you know, I just heard it on Peel's show on the radio, and I just thought, wow. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, a big, big sort of influence on me. Nice. So that was like, obviously, when it came out, you're talking around '76. So that's you know, that's quite a few years back, and that was like, was that maybe one of the first like dub tunes you heard, or was that just something that really kind of stood out? Well. The first, I don't even know what the first dub tune I heard was um, because I'll tell you how I really started getting into it, into this music. When I was about 16, I left school and I went to the local technical college in Manchester, which is where I grew up, and I did my A-levels there. And at the time, I was like, you know, your average English teenager, just into rock music, and I really had no involvement about in reggae at all. I hadn't really listened to it much. And I had a friend at college, and we used to sit in his car at lunchtime and have a spliff, and, and he had an eight-track, which will, you know, show you how long ago yeah, that I remember was. the eight-tracks in the car. Yeah, and he had, um, it was a Bob Marley album, which I know sounds a bit of a cliche now, but at the time, you know, Bob Marley was a big thing and wasn't really as mainstream as then as he has become now. And it may have been the Natty Dread album, and we just used to play it in the car, and I just thought, oh, this is a bit different, you know, a bit different from Pink Floyd and Deep Purple and, you know, Jimi Hendrix and the rest of the kind of stuff which I used to listen to in those days. So that just kind of set me having a little bit of interest in reggae. And then I think the first record I ever bought, Virgin Records label, um, they had this series called The Frontline, and they did like this sampler album. Yeah, and and the first Frontline sampler, I think it, it was really cheap, like 50 pence, 60 pence, something like that. And I didn't necessarily like every track that was on the album, but, you know, it it was a good introduction. The thing that really kind of changed me was um, I used to be into punk quite a bit Mm -hmm. at one time. It was all happening around that time, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there was like a kind of alliance between punks and reggae artists, you know, the old cliches like Punky Reggae Party, and you had Mikey Dredd working with The Clash. And I used to go to um, a lot of gigs in Manchester organised by Rock Against Racism. Rock Against Racism um, was um, an anti-racism organisation which existed to try and oppose the National Front. Now, for people who don't know what the National Front was, it was a racist, far-right political party which was quite active in the UK at the time. And, you know, they used to go into black areas and Asian areas in London and around the country and they'd march and they'd cause trouble and I went to um, a big open air rock against racism gig in a park in Manchester I can't remember who the artists were it may have been the Buzzcocks it may have been Steel Pulse it may have been the Cimarrons I forget who the artists were but it was about I reckon it was about 1975 and I went for a walk round the back of the park, and there was a sound system there. Now, that, that was the first time that I'd ever heard. This is in Manchester Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is in, it, was, it was in a park in Moss Side. I can't remember what the name of the park was. But, yeah, it was in Moss Side, which is one of the black areas of Manchester. And, and as I say, at the back of the park, um, with this 
Rock Against Racism gig going on, which was really well populated. There was a sound system all on its own. There was nobody there. There was nobody hanging out, nobody taking any interest in it, really. And there was about, you know, maybe 10, 15 black guys running the sound. And I just stood there for about half an hour watching to them and listening to them. And I've no idea to this day what the sound was called. I've no idea what any of the, you know, of the music was that they were playing. But I just thought, wow, this is so different. And, you know, the way it sounded. Do you, do you remember how it sounded? I mean, what, what kind of impression it left on you? It was really, really heavy. And, you know, the way that obviously we know that sound nowadays that sound systems present music. Music, you know, the bass, the mid and the tops separating everything, having pure bass lines, dropping the bass in after a few bars of the intro, DJs emceeing on the mic, uh, the echo chambers, the sound effects, etc. I've never heard anything like it in my life and I just thought, wow. That's for sure. So so you're hearing this like sound system and, and this event in Manchester, which I presume has got like reggae bands playing alongside kind of punk bands and rock bands and things. And then, so how, how did you kind of delve deeper into it? What, what sort of journey did you take? Well, I started going to some sound systems in Manchester um, and other places in the country as well. I mean, I've lived in quite a few different places in the UK. I lived in Newcastle for a while. I lived in Derby for a while when I was at college. I lived in Nottingham for a while. Um, spent most of my life in London but you know when I was in Nottingham in all places with reggae kind of culture as well all those cities even Derby yeah Derby had its own scene there were about three or four quite good sounds and actually Derby funnily enough was one of the was really kind of quite influential on my musical development there was one particular sound in Derby called Enforcer who were really good pretty heavy and they had their own record shop which I think was called Black Star Records it was in Normanton which is one of the black areas of Derby or, or at least it was when I lived there anyway going back to the early 80s and I used to go in there and buy quite a lot of records and I'd get to know you know, the guys from the sound who were working in the shop, I'd go in there on a regular basis and they would see me come to the sound in Derby when they played out. And then they started saying to me, look, you know, next week we're playing in uh, Hansworth in Birmingham with Quaker City and Sir Cox and we're, we're running a coach, you know, you're welcome to come with us if you want to. And as it happens, I, I didn't go along because I had other things going on. But the point I'm trying to get across is that, you know, they, uh, me being an outsider, being a white guy, and you have to understand in those days it was an almost entirely black scene when it comes to the audience at sound systems and when it comes to um, the people who were involved in sound systems there were very very few white people um, going to those dances or in, in even less you know involved in those yeah, dances. Well, something we were talking about sort of leading up to this was like you know obviously I'm, I'm really interested in kind of what these sessions were like kind of years before I was attending them. So what what kind of recollections and descriptions would you have of like going to dances in Manchester or Derby or Nottingham, like in the 1970s? They were brilliant. They were just awesome. I mean, every, everything about them was amazing. First, I mean, the vibes, the music that was played, the way the sounds themselves sounded, 
I mean, over from about probably 77, 78, actually probably 78 is when I'm really starting going to sound regularly in the Midlands. And I used to hear a lot of the big sounds like Sir Coxon and Jatubbies at the time and Frontline, Fat Man, um, a lot of the big ones from Birmingham like um, Studio City, Jungle Man, Quaker City. And, uh, you know, the, they were all brilliant. Um, every tune w- which they played was like mind blowing. Um, the, the sound quality was incredible. Uh, a lot of the time you would just be left gasping for breath by the bass line because it was so intense. In these times, you, people weren't used to hearing that kind of, but you couldn't really get it anywhere else. So it, it must have been extra special. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there was, I mean, as we know, looking with the benefit of hindsight now, you know, the influence of reggae and dub techniques has permeated into a lot of other different genres of music but back then it had there wasn't any music around that time that was driven by bass so much as well it's like not at all not at all and, and also I, th- I think a lot of people i think there was a tendency from some people who didn't really know anything about reggae and they were into rock music and i think there was a tendency for quite a lot of people to look down their nose at reggae and think oh you know it's not proper music it's you know the music Musicianship isn't very good, it's pretty limited and it's pretty raw. But really, if, if you look at the great musicians in Jamaica, and, and most of the music in Jamaica, you know, it was made by a pool of like 20, 30 musicians who, you know, either they formed a studio one band or if they played for Joe Gibbs, they were the professionals. If they played at Channel One, you know, they were the revolutionaries. If they played for Bunny Lee, they were the aggravators. And they were all absolutely brilliant, highly gifted, highly talented musicians who could hold up with anyone and I think if you analyse reggae uh, technically as a music you know it's really really complex it's not simple at all so uh, I think people who had that attitude you know just did not understand what was going on what it was all about what was it like for you obviously as as a white guy going because when I started going to dances in Leicester that there were some white people in the dances but there was still predominantly black music venues black music promoters, black music sessions very much. So, but obviously going back like in the 70s, then I wonder what it was like for you as a, going to these sessions. I mean, I have never had any problems um, ever going into a dance. I've never had any problems with black people. You know, I don't judge people based on their colour or their nationality or their religion. I accept everyone as a human being. And when I went into those sessions, having said that, you know, I was very aware that being the age that it was, you know, there's a lot of discrimination and racism in England, which of course there still is. And, you know, those dances were not, not only were they largely a black thing, but they were a means of expression. And or, or you could almost say like in, you know, a safety valve for a lot of the black youth at the time because, you know, they were going through a lot of discrimination in England. So going to those dances was like a way for them to get away from, you know, English society, white society, however you want to term it, and, you know, be amongst themselves and be able to express what was going on, you know, not only with the 
wrath a part of it, but also just, you know, what it was like for black people in the UK at the time. So having said that, you know, I, I was just very humble and I would go in my corner and keep myself to myself and be aware that, you know, I was an outsider and I needed to just be respectful of that. And are there any sessions that you particularly remember or any sounds you particularly remember kind of leaving an impression on you? was the first time I saw Shaka, which was a place called the Havana Club in Derby in 1981. By that time, I'd probably seen most of the big sounds in England, but I hadn't seen Shaka yet, and I'd heard all about him, and I'd been told what to expect. And then when he came to Derby, um, you know, I was kind of get, getting ready for it. And was he playing on his own or playing another sound? No, he was playing with another sound, with a sound from Derby, who I cannot remember what they were called. But basically, everyone was there to see Shaka. The the venue, the Havana Club in Derby, it was basically like a sort of large house where the walls had been knocked down, not knocked through downstairs to make one big room. So it was a pretty small kind of intimate venue compared to most places where sound systems would take place. Um, it just completely blew me away. Um, it, you know, it's a, it was, I, I would say, go so far as to say it was a life-changing experience. And how, how was it different to other sounds? I mean, what, what was it that back then, which, because obviously you've got all these sounds which are all on top form and kind of firing on all cylinders. So what, what, what made Shaka more more of a thing partially partially the music which he played I, I mean when i say that you know all the sounds played good music that was largely down to most of the music that was being made in those days but shaka had the type of dubs which and dub plates which you know most of the sounds did not have i mean you, you know he would have four cuts and never get burned by the twinkle brothers that other sounds didn't have he just have different cuts um you know coming straight from king tubbies etc and whereas you know a sound like Sir Coxon who was also absolutely brilliant and um, I, I would lump Coxon and Fat Man as the top two along Shaka but they were a bit more kind of versatile they wouldn't necessarily play you know 100% roots and culture dub play they might go into other styles of, of reggae music as well maybe a bit of lovers maybe a bit more kind of commercial stuff but you know Shaka was completely focused on his message and so and also he himself um, if you hear him nowadays you know I don't think he really takes the mic much nowadays but back in those days you know he was the front man and he was singing and chanting well, he's got a lot of energy still now but back then when he was a, when he was a young man it must have been it must have been fire I, I mean to make a comparison you know imagine like Mark Iration when he was 23 it's like you know there, there was that, that, that kind of energy and that kind of fire and it just you know it just, I mean not that Mark Ovation who's a very good brethren of mine and I love him to bits not that he doesn't have energy now I know he's got energy in abundance but I'm just trying to make the comparison that you know here you've got someone who you know is really out there and up front and you know gets the vibes across gets the message across 102% and that is what Shaka was like and the audience I mean what, what kind of vibe are we seeing in the audience and obviously you know, uh, absolute completely transfixed I mean mesmerized um you know just like wow 
you know, you can't, <laughs> completely um, awesome. And did you then go on to, like, start following Shaka and, and to, to check him more regularly? And Yeah, I, I did. Well, it was shortly after that that I moved to London where, when I finished college in Derby. And I started going to see Shaka quite regularly um, on a Friday night. He used to have um, a residency every week at a place called Phoebe's in Stoke Newington. Yeah, that's the legendary um, spot. With, yeah, which actually used, I think it used to be owned by the great wings, you know, the legendary London gangsters at one time. But anyway, it, it was a big reggae venue there. And um, the first time I went along, I made the mistake of getting there about midnight, and he wasn't even there yet. In, the, in those days, one thing you used to get, you used to get sounds quite often playing two sessions in the same night. They'd do like an early session at somewhere like, like a youth club, say from about seven in the evening and they'd finish about 11 and then they'd string the sound down and then they'd, you know, get to whatever the other venue was and um, play there from like one, two in the morning till... You know, whenever he finished, seven in the morning, ten in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon. Because in those in, in those days, you weren't getting sessions outside of like reggae music and maybe soul music and stuff that, that were going on all night. It's kind of the world wasn't really like that so much then. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it, it was a, a law unto itself. So anyway, this you know, this first time that I went down to Phoebe's, um, I, I think Shaka arrived about one about one in the morning and he strummed the sound up and he started playing about 2, 2.30 and people gradually started coming I think and then about maybe about 3, 4 in the morning you know I played the last plastic and then from then on it was opening the dub plate box and just pure dub plate for the rest of the night and you have to remember in those days the dubs he was playing you know it wasn't his own productions because he'd hardly I think even started making his own music then, so it would be like the wickedest vintage dubs from Yard, you know, from King Toby's studio, Scientist dubs, Twinkle Brothers, Black Uhuru, Hugh Mundell, Augustus Pablo, Yabiyu, Lee Perry, just, you know, the absolute cream of the crop. That's it. It's just like a, it's like a different world to today, isn't it? Because like when when you've got that music fresh as well, it's like you know the the, the Roots Radics producing like their best music, and you know you a Black Hero kind of approaching the top of their game and stuff. It's kind of and you know that that music's all fresh and new. It's uh, it must have been really crazy days. And a, a, another thing I would say about that era, not with not really with Shaka, but with a lot of other sounds. I mean, it was very very competitive. I mean, you'd see a flyer, and it'd be worded like a boxing match. You know, even though you know supposedly that it was peace, love, and unity in the dance. You know, the reality was that you know a lot of the sounds came there to knock each other out. I mean, not in an yeah, not not in an aggressive sense, not in a violent way, anything like like that. You know, it was kind of good natured, but you know, everyone was out to prove themselves. And I mean, most with all due respect, most of the new sounds coming out nowadays in the UK, in Europe, around the world, they just wouldn't have lasted uh, in, in that kind of arena. They wouldn't have had what it takes, you know, to keep up and, you know, stand firm and hold their own, in, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are, like, serious sound systems then. And you, and you were obviously 
you're someone who has a lot of knowledge of the music um, and you, you you started to collect it, I guess, and collect it seriously, I'm guessing. Is, did you do that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I did that for years. And I mean, where, wherever I was living, whether it was in, you know, there were a couple of little reggae shops in Nottingham. There was the one in Derby I told you about. There was some in Manchester. When I moved down to London, you know, I used to go places like Daddy Cool's, um, Dog Vendor, various other yeah, places. When I used to go town. years ago, there were, there were dozens, but back then there must have been like hundreds of shops, I guess. Well, not hundreds, but, but really a lot. Well, there was a fair there was a fair amount in London, and, and to be honest, I never even because I always lived in North London. I hardly ever went south of the river because I, I didn't I didn't know anyone there. So you know, I never went to Brixton or Clapham or any of the places like that purely because you know that just wasn't my part of town. Camden Town itself had a big collecting scene. There were a number of different shops there. And quite often I would bump into people like, like Jake, uh, who runs the Tough Scout label now, who's a good friend of mine. He actually used to live literally around the corner to me at one time. He used to be around my flat, you know, on a regular basis. I used to bump into Rusty Disciples, Moose Ting, you know, all sorts of people. I, I built up um, a big collection of that kind of... Uh, you know, it led to me getting involved in sound system myself. It led to me getting involved in pirate radio. And then you started to kind of, like, get involved in it. You just mentioned some pirate radio, and obviously the sound system is, is, is a big thing as well. So so when did you start to kind of, you know, to obviously you've been going to sessions and buying music and stuff, but to kind of, you know, to get involved in it? One thing um, which I also did, um, I, I did photography at college, and I, I never really made a career of it. But, you know, I used to do photography from time to time, which I still do now and again. And I also did writing. I mean, the only thing I was ever any good at at school was, like, English and art. I was never going to be a scientist and I was never going to be a mathematician or work in an office or anything like, like that. I was always kind of quite artistic and creative. So... I used to um, do some freelance writing, um, sometimes on my own, sometimes with a friend of mine called John Hind as well. And we used to write for various magazines and newspapers. So I ended up doing um, a feature on um, graffiti artists. And when hip hop started um, becoming a big thing in the, in the mid 80s, one facet of hip hop was graffiti artists. And I did an article about um, graffiti artists in the UK. This, this is all new. It's the first time people have seen this stuff then, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I went down to Bristol and I interviewed um, this guy called 3D um, in the Wild Bunch, who later went on to become Massive Attack. Um, I got in touch with Tim Westwood, who um, at the time was doing a show, a hip-hop show, on a pirate station called LWR, which stood for London Weekend Radio. And he put me in touch with various graffiti artists on the hip-hop scene. And he said to me, um, Steve, I'm on this um, radio station, LWR, they're expanding from just being at weekends to being 24 hours, seven days a week. Um, next thing I know, um, I was on the radio once a week doing a Roots show and a, and a dub show, and I used to pre-record some of it. Um, there was a guy who lived near me called Malcolm who used to DJ with um, some local sound systems, 
and I got to know him and he used to come around my flat and I had a little hi-fi set up with a graphic equaliser and it had a, a mic input to it and we had a mic and a little shaka siren and echo etc and we used to do this segment for about 40, 45 minutes in the two-hour show where I'd just be playing some music and he would, you know, chant over it and we'd do it kind of sound system style. And he got quite a good feedback. Um, but later on, after about nine months, I kind of got stabbed in the back, metaphorically speaking, by one of the DJs. Um, I, I, won't, I won't mention his name. He's quite well known. But they had uh, a meeting at the station and um, of all the DJs, and this guy said, why, you know, there's two shows on this station which I think we should get rid of one of them's Steve Show because nobody's interested in dub and the other's Tim Westwood Show because hip-hop's dead <laughs> and nobody's interested in hip-hop yeah, anymore they're two yeah. forms of music which have proved to be indestructible yeah 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 famous last words so basically I, I got the chop and Tim Westwood got the chop I think Tim later went on to you know Kiss FM and Capital and blah 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 the rest is history but anyway um what happened with me was I was then um, approached by some guys um, who lived in Tottenham, which is not far from where I used to live in North London, and they were doing setting up a sound system and they had the equipment, um, but they didn't have enough music. And they said, look, would you be interested in, you know, joining up with us and getting involved in it? We want to start sound and, you know, you could be the selector blah, blah, blah. So I thought, yeah, okay, let's give it a go. So um, the name of the sound was Humble Lion. I mean, it, it wasn't a big thing. We did a few a few dances here and there around North London. Uh, it, it wasn't really a big thing. But after a while, we started thinking, you know, let's change it up. Let's try and take it a bit further. Let's try and build it up a bit more. So you had a bit of hunger to kind of do something with it then, and you, want, you wanted to get more involved and to kind of take it further. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. So, you know, we went to Jatobis and we got him to, you know, build some new amps for us and then we went down to see a guy in Southend called Larry Hughes. Mr. Dubs. Or something like that. Exactly. And we changed the name to John Warrior. I think that was about 1987. And the first dance we ever did um, was, was not far from where I lived in Muswell Hill and we did it with Manasseh. Um, and Nick told me at the time he walked in and he saw what we had and he said he was in one mind um, to get straight back in his van again and just go home not, not even bother because what we had was like about four times the size of what we had. But what we didn't know was that we didn't have it wired up correctly, didn't get our amps until literally the, the day of the dance, literally an hour before it was due to start. So we didn't have it wired up properly, and because of that, we couldn't get a bit, we couldn't get a proper baseline. But I will fully admit, Nick wiped the floor with us because, you know, his setup, you know, even though it was much smaller than ours, sounded right and ours sounded wrong. So, you know, that was a kind of crazy. In, in, you kind of need those wake-up calls sometimes, don't you? When you do, when you when you're there publicly, you can't beat being sort of humiliated. Sometimes you make you realise that's how not to do it. Now, now I really know how not to do it. I'm going to go and do it properly now. Yeah, definitely. You you know sometimes you you can learn a lot from situations like so, that. So at some point, did did you? Obviously, people know you for like music production as well. So, were you producing any music back then? I mean, were you making music for the sound or anything like that? 
the, the person who I first started making music with, and it was purely as like dub plates for the sound system, um, with no intention of ever releasing anything, it was a guy called Blacker who had um, a place called Vibe Studio, which was in Leighton in East London. And he used to work with Chichi Roots as well. And I first heard about him because he had an advert in the back of Black Echoes, which was, you know, the only kind of... Yeah, so there's a, the, the one source of information. Exactly. And his advert was for, you know, dub plates for, for sound systems. So this is probably about 1986. I thought, look, if I'm going to take the sound system seriously, I've got to get some dub plates together. So we went down. Um, he said, you know, come down and write really early on a Sunday morning, about 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. That was the only time we could do it because, you know, we were all working different day jobs at the time. So um, that's the first time he introduced me to Keaty Rooks. And, you know, Keaty is a great, great guy, and I'm, I'm still in touch with him nowadays. Yeah, Keaty's a legend. First, first guest on this very podcast. Yeah, and you know he's you know doing doing well and good luck to him. Him, him and Blacker, you know, I've got the utmost respect for because you know they really welcomed me into the business. They showed me, you know, how it was done, and and you know, and it was a great introduction for me. So I would go in eight o'clock in the morning, and and, and really are. I knew less than zero about music. I had no idea about the recording process. And all that happened was I would go in and I would hum a bass line. So then when I'd go, you know, can you, you know, I'd like to build a tune, you know, bass line. Sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I had no intention to release anything. It was just, you know, exclusive tunes for, for myself. Then what happened was after probably about 1989, um, I was introduced to a record label called Mr. Modo. They are the people who released the first, Nick Manassas' first LP with Sound Iration, and, you know, some of the the singles we Sound Iration released, and they were actively looking for people, um, and I um, to release music with. So that, that, those are the days when, when labels were actively looking for artists. Yeah, and, and I mean, having said that, you know, there was, there was, there was no money whatsoever in it. And, and, and they said, Mr. Mondo said, you know, they like some of them, but they would like some of the tunes to be a bit more polished. So they paid for me to go into a studio. Um, I can't remember. It was somewhere, I can't remember what it was called. It was somewhere in South London. And it was quite, you know, it was a little kind of indie professional studio, but it wasn't a reggae studio. Um, and the engineer there, he, you know, he didn't understand how to mix dub and how to do specialised thing dub techniques. And I mean, my, and my knowledge was very, very basic then, but I, you know, I knew that he wasn't doing it right. So I had to kind of, you know, try and take over myself. <clears throat> and it, uh, and you know, the, I, I wasn't really very, I, I wasn't really happy with the finished results of that. Anyway, they put out an album which was a combination of some things done at Blacker's Place and some things with Keaty Roots and some things at various other studios. And, you know, it was very kind of rough and rudimentary. It were, and, I mean, looking back on it now, I kind of, in a way, I kind of wish that oh, I didn't do it because I, it was... 
I didn't have, uh, you know, enough finesse back then to do it properly. It's, it's tricky with stuff like that because it's kind of, and I, I know exactly what you mean when I listen to a lot of my early stuff. I'm like, I maybe should have waited till I actually knew what I was doing. But at the same time, if you wait, I see a lot of people waiting and never doing anything. So there's something to be said for just going out there and doing it, even if it's not as good as it could be, because it it can force you into kind of progressing, I think. That is, that is true. Yeah, because I'm guessing at some point uh, a certain Mr. Wardrop got involved in it all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, there, there was a record shop called Quaff Records, which was in um, Stroud Green, which was like the nearest reggae shop to where I used to live. And there was a guy called Pepe who ran the shop and, and it was the headquarters of the Youth Sounds label and people like Debbie Red and, you know, LIDJ, Aishu used to hang out and Zylon used, used to hang out there and even Culture Freeman used to work in there at one time. That's how I first met Freeman. And I heard the first um, Conscious Sounds release, with, I think it was called Stepping mm-hmm. Time by Century. I, knew, I, I didn't know um, who, you know, who was behind it. I'd never heard of Dougie. So, uh, well, I was in um, Quaff one day and I said to Pepe, you know, who's behind that Conscious Sound signature? I wouldn't trying to, you know, contact him and trying to get hold of them and, and trying to get some cuts for the, um, some dump play cuts for the sound. He goes, oh, that's Dougie, yeah, go down to Camden Market. He runs a record store there on a, a weekend. So, sure enough, I went down there and I spoke to Dougie um, and I, th- I can't remember whether he came down to my place in Muswell or whether I went to his place in Stamford Hill. But, but anyway, but he said, yeah, you know, let's get together. And, and he gave me some cuts. And then um, I started, uh, I just started going to see him. Um, he had a little studio in the beginning. I, I think it was Nick Manassas' old mm-hmm. studio. Yeah, I think like he told me in the four, interview that he'd, he'd got some uh, stuff. A little there. four, a, a very basic kind of four-track cassettes cassette set up um, and I, went, I started going down to his place and I, a route to begin with he had it in the hallway of his flat where, where we lived in Stamford Hill and you know it was all very basic but it was it was it was good enough to you know for, for our purposes and he was starting to release things and then he kind of improved the studio a bit and he took it up into his loft in the flat and you know he got um, a little, I think it was an eight track board and you know things were starting to sound better and then um you know, it moved on again for a while. He had it in Camden Town. It was um, a flat above a shop on Camden High Street where this guy called Nigel, who was the guitar player in um, Century, lived and had the studio there for a while. And I did a few tunes there. And then it moved down to Dalston and then it moved to Homerton. So I am probably one of the few people. Um, who was actually recorded at every single incarnation of, of Conscious Sounds. Anyway, to get back to meeting Dougie, um, it was a really good experience and he was really, really helpful to me. Um, and I have to big him up for yeah, that. For sure. And then I, I, n- I never really intended doing anything with the music other than making dub lights for the sound. And then one day he said to me, look, Steve, you know, you're not, you're not playing out that much. You know, you're making all this music why don't you start, you know, why don't you think about releasing stuff? Now, I'd, I'd never 
ever thought about releasing music. I've never had any intention of starting a record label. Like that was the time when you know Dougie was starting out. Ross Disciples was you know had his own label going. People like Alfred. Well, I think they can sometimes they can seem like things other people do. Our record labels are these special things that other people who are destined to have record labels set up. But it really is simple as you've made some music you just go and get it pressed and get it out there. But it, sometimes it takes people like Dougie or whoever's got the experience to say, look, get this stuff out. I think people will like it. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I mean, at the time, you know, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go, etc. But, you know, he took me down to SRD, who were the main distributor that, you know, got all the, most of the UK Roots labels into the, into the shops in those days. And, you know, I found out, what, you know, how to get the music um, mastered and you know where to take it to get it pressed etc etc where to go to get labels done and as I say you know it was all, all Dougie who helped me with that so you know you know respect to him for doing that because without him I, I, I probably never may never even have gone on, on the path which I did because that on. path was was a very kind of you know sort of you, you did a lot of work with Dougie and you obviously you started off releasing some sevens but then you went on to doing albums and working of artists and some big name artists and it seemed to really be you know it's a really successful thing and that they're, they're really highly um sort of praised tracks to this day I think it's kind of it was a obviously got a golden time yeah I, I mean I kind of as, as time progressed I, I'm the sort of person who when, when I get into something which I enjoy. I like to sort of give it my all and, you know, try and do my best. I mean, I may not always succeed, but but I try and uh, I do my best and give it my all. You know, I had to go from running the label from the spare bedroom in the house to, you know, getting a little office and then getting a bigger office after that because I outgrew the smaller office and then getting an even bigger one and then getting, finally, it turned out to be like a mini kind of warehouse. And, you know, having at one stage, I had a little kind of um, very, very small scale kind of what I'd call a notebook studio in my loft in the house. And I used to kind of work on ideas uh, for tracks and then take it to Dougie's to finish them off. But but moving on to how, how I got involved with working with more well-known artists, I used to be a member of an organisation called Raw. R-A-W, which stands for Reggae Ambassadors Worldwide. That was like a web thing. I remember that. Yeah, it was like the very early days of the internet, like maybe 1997, 1998. It was, Raw was like a kind of international reggae networking organization and I just joined it because I thought you know maybe it maybe it might be an opportunity to meet some other people and you know make some links etc most of the members of war were in America but there were different ones you know dotted in a few countries around the world so one day um, I was in my little office and I got an email from Peter Brock's manager who was also a member of war and she said um, I just wanted to get in touch because I know you're in London and Peter's in London at the moment. He's there to do a show, and I wonder if you might, if you might want to, if you'd be interested in meeting with him and maybe, you know, doing some recording with him. So I thought, yeah, that's, that sounds great. And my initial idea um, was to do a version of Jack Golden. Of course, from. yes, one of the classics. 
Yeah, which, you know, for me was like, you know, one of his best known tunes. And, you know, Shaka used to play it regularly and, uh, and I had it myself and loved it. He actually did three tunes for me on, on the day um, when he came to the studio to do Jack Golden Throne when I was only expecting one. And then we ended up doing a full album as well. What happened from there was he, he was doing a live stage show with Prince Allah um, at a place called the Selby Centre in Tottenham. And I went down to the show and I wanted to meet Prince Allah as well. And Peter was going to try and introduce me to Prince Allah. Um, all that happened on that night was I got Prince Allah's phone number and I rang him up. And to cut a long story short, it was really difficult getting together with Prince Allah, not because he, he didn't want to meet up with me, but because he was just in a situation with some people in London who wanted to keep him to themselves and they didn't want to let him, you know, go out and meet yeah, with other people. Yeah, they can be complicated, these, these kind of political things. Exactly. So eventually, yeah, it took a long time, I don't know, maybe two months, maybe even three months, but eventually... Um, I got a phone call from someone who was, you know, a friend of ours one day and said, right, you know, Steve, we've sorted it. He's ready to work, you know, when can we come down and talk to you? He came down to the studio, and I mean, Prince Allen is like one of the nicest guys you could ever hope to meet. I mean, such, such a, a great gen- Yeah, well. such a genuine, cool, sincere brethren, um, a genuine mastermind with love in his heart. You know, I love him to bits. I would never... I could never say a bad word about him, and it's hard for me to imagine anyone could say a bad word about him. You know, it was the very early days of the internet. I think a lot of people in Jamaica weren't really aware of what was going on uh, with the music, with the root scene in the UK. Prince Allah told me this was only the second time he'd been been to England. He'd only been once before, very, very briefly, in the 70s. And he, and he didn't know, you know, he, you know, because of the situation of lack of communication, he just did not know what was going on with the music the in the People were listening to his tunes and they were still being played and Lot's Wife and Great Stone were still, you know, become anthems. Exactly. So he pulled out a cassette and he said, you know, maybe we can do something like this. So we put it on and the cassette basically was some fairly kind of, you know, not our style of music at all. It was like some pretty, like what you could only call lovers rock or, you know, mainstream kind of reggae. So me and Dougie just kind of looked at each other and we didn't say anything. And then we said to him, yeah, you know, maybe, but, you know, listen, Listen to this. What do you think of that? And we played him, you know, one of our tunes, and uh, and his eyes lit up, and he said, oh, you know, my God, you know, I never thought anything like this was going on in England. So um, we've, I think, we've voiced two tunes with him that day, and at the end of the day, he said, you know, I never expected to, to see or hear anything like this in England. It reminds me. That's it, because without the internet and that sort of knowledge, you wouldn't you wouldn't expect there to be kind of like heavy dread tunes being made in England. You just kind of maybe think, oh, I'll do this watered down thing because maybe that's what the European audience want. And- yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. So you know, it was a real shock to him, but you know, I think a, a pleasant shock. Uh, and he actually said at the end of the day, he said, you know, this reminds me of being back in King Tubby's studio. 
And you know, you can't nice. get any bigger com you can't get any bigger compliment than that. So, you know, I ended up doing a full album with him and then, you know, another album later on. And it's like once you uh, and the record label was like growing and getting bigger and you know, the European scene was starting to happen and emerge and you know, you may it was just kind of growing organically. Yeah, I remember, I remember uh, it being it seemed to you know perceived to be like a successful thing, and all these great releases coming out, and and you know when when me and Richie Roots set up the Scoops label, it's like you know you're really helpful and knowledgeable, and but just about how to do it in the same way you know when you when you started a label, it's kind of you have to learn the ropes, but but it definitely seemed to be a, you know a, a successful thing, and and just busy with all these like projects and artists and like you know. Yeah, that that's right. And as I say, you know, it's like an organic thing. It's like once, you know, once you've worked with one artist, you know, they might say, oh, you know, I can introduce you to so-and-so. I mean, I did a couple of tunes with Earl 16, who was great as well. And Earl said, you know, have you ever done anything with Alton Ellis? You know, I can link you with Alton if you like. And, and at the time I was doing it, I had a, quite a good distribution um, thing going in France with Patat Records, which is a shop and a label in Paris. And, you know, Patat introduced me to Rod Taylor and Rod Taylor introduced me to Winston Mokonoff. And, you know, I think Winston Mokonoff introduced me to Horace Andy. And, and you know, it just kind of grows and grows. And but, it's, but it's interesting because like the, the labels, there's so much to talk about and it's, it's such a long, long history. But it's like kind of slightly moving on from there. One thing that I'm sort of quite interested, maybe because I'm a bit geeky or whatever, is it's like you setting up the reggae music store because I think for people listening now, people of a certain age know what that whole journey's been in terms of buying records and buying them online. But back then, I mean, you set up one of the first ever kind of online reggae music retailers where you could listen to the music online and then you could order it and you'd get it, get it sent to you, which at the time was quite a revolutionary thing. Yes, that is true. I mean, I mean, the internet changed everything. And, you know, people who have come into this music in the, in the past 20 years, you know, even 20 years ago, have to realise that, you know, when we were starting off in the mid-90s and in the late 90s before, for that, you know, all the kind of resources which are available to anyone at the click of a computer mouse, you know, YouTube, um, being able to buy stuff online, etc., um, just didn't exist then. And, and all the kind of mystery, which, you know, was in, in a way was kind of one of the beauties of discovering this music because, you know, we didn't know how anything was made, we didn't know the history. Um, all that has kind of been removed now because, you you know, you've got people in Europe making, you know, the, the same kind of filter that King Toby used in his studio and making, you know, really good sound system equipment and studio equipment, etc. So in in those days, you know, it, it, you could it was much more difficult to buy reggae. You had to really seek out that information. Yeah. Um, and particularly if you were in, you know, a small... I mean, there were plenty of places if you were in London or Birmingham or, you know, one of the big cities with a large black population where there was, you know, a fair amount of reggae shops where you could go down and listen to vinyl and buy it. But, you know, if you were in, you know, some little out-of-the-way place or if you were in some little town in France or Sweden or Italy, etc. Even in Leicester, I had to, like 
get the bus down to London if I, I wanted to go serious record buying. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, I mean, when I started out in Manchester, you know, sometimes I used to just, I would hear something on John Peel's show, which I liked, and there was no way you could get it in Manchester or Birmingham or Derby or wherever I was living at the time. So I would just go down to the post office, get a postal order and send it off to Dublander or Daddy Calls mail order and, you know, hope that they still had a copy left in stock, you know, enough copies left to send anyone in, in the mail the next week um, but yeah so I just decided to at, at the time um, I don't, I'm not sure if I, if I even had a website for the label maybe I had a very very basic very rudimentary one and I think I think I tried to do a little mail order thing um, you know just offering what, what little catalogue I had which in those days probably amounted to just two or three singles you know offering them for sale mail mail order you know I'd get I'd sell a tiny little quantity of them, but not many and then somebody um, said to me um, look you know why do, you know you're not going to get very far doing that why don't you try and do an online store and I said what do you mean so they explained it to me and um, my friend Colin Bird who designed my first proper website he actually did the online store for me um, and it, it really kind of took off and I didn't have many um, tunes on it at first but you know I started seeing more and more people and, and getting stock from various people and various friends who had labels and selling it for them and it just kind of exploded and then I started you know building it up to be a bigger thing and and you didn't even need to do any any promotion in those days and, and the social media didn't even exist right. so so literally or, or the only thing I did, I got a little mailing list of, you know, people who bought from me in the past and maybe once a month, maybe at the most twice a month, I would send out an email with whatever new titles I had to my mailing list and people would just start buying. But, but people would sometimes start buying even before the mailing list. Sometimes within 10 minutes of me putting a new tune on the site, it would start selling. So... You know, people were out there actively looking. Yeah, there was a hunger to get the music because it was a long, slow process normally. Yeah, and and you know, the, all that has changed now, and kind of, it's quite ironic that a lot of the people who started out in as my customers, particularly in Europe, you know, they started getting into the business themselves. First of all, they'd be a DJ and then, you know, they'd, they'd have their own sound system and then maybe they'd start being a producer and then they'd have their own record label. Some even went on to do their own online stores. And, you know, the, the technology of the internet changed. Um, it, it wasn't so easy to set up an online store back in those days. Definitely, it was expensive, and, and people were, like, suspicious of buying stuff online then as well. There's a whole load of barriers which you can't imagine uh, so, now. Yeah, people, you know, people weren't used to it. I mean, I remember the first time when I was just collecting, somebody said, you know, I'm getting bought by a lot of stuff on eBay. I said, what's that? I mean, I've never even heard of eBay. I've never even heard of Amazon because it was all a big, you know, never heard of PayPal when it first came out because, you know, it was all new 
you know, technology, which um, obviously nowadays is part and parcel of everyone's life. But back then, you know, it was really testing the waters. So it was a big thing. And in a way, that kind of led to me having to specialise more. And it led to a decision to pack the sound system in. I was in a position where I was so busy and I had my finger in so many pies. I mean, the rent of the label was going from strength to strength. I was getting distribution in, you know, so many countries. I mean, at once, it, and it, it was really easy to get like a proper, legit international distribution deal in those days. I used to have my little office, and I used to go in on a Monday morning and I think, mm, which countries can I get um, distribution in this week? And I thought, right, you know, for sake of, let's say this week, I'm going to see if I can get a distribution deal in Poland, Japan, and, and, and Switzerland, and then next week I'm going to try, you know, Italy and Germany and Canada, blah, blah, blah. And and I never met any of these people. I never even phoned any of these people. I did it all by email. You know, this is my catalogue. You know, I wonder if you'd be interested in distributing me in your country. And they didn't all work out. But, you know, eventually I was in a situation where I had distribution for Joe Warrior in just about every country in the world where it's possible to get distribution for our genre of music. That's a lot of work dealing with all those individually as well. I mean, my God, it was a lot of work. As you know, you know, I started doing my own distribution for other labels as well, putting them through my accounts for... Um, with various distributors in various countries, you know, even distributing scoops. Yeah, for sure. At one stage, and loads of other labels. And, you know, doing my own production, you know, going to doggies once a week. And actually, I would have liked to have, uh, to have been more in the music and had my own uh, studio. But, but I figured, you know, I, I just haven't got that. There's no point in it because in me doing that because... You know, I haven't got the time. And some people used to say to me, you know, how come you don't mix your own dogs when you go to doggies? And, and my answer was always, look, you know, he knows the studio far better than I do. He, he knows his equipment better than me. Um, he's the specialist in, in mixing dub. I would rather let him uh, mix in any type of reggae. You know, I would and rather let to bring let out the best. So obviously, Dougie's always been busy, like, producing and whatever. But when you two are working together, it's like there's definitely like a, you know, the, the bar went high. I think with quality and everything. Well, I think you know. I mean, I've got my way. You know, I mean, my style of music is not necessarily, you know, Dougie's style of music. I think if you listen to a Conscious Sounds production and you listen to one of mine, even though they may be mixed by the same engineer. But anyway, um, trying to move on to what we were talking about. So yeah, with and, uh, and the uh, reggae music store, the online store, it was getting busier and busier and busier, and it not. It wasn't like this every single day, but, you know, on a peak day, I could maybe get 100, 125 orders. Now, anybody who has tried to, you know, get 125 orders packed 
and picked uh, and shipped off to the post office and a lot of them you know sent by registered mail uh, to uh, you know all over the world and you've got to keep track of it's all the records in case things get lost and you've got to and a lot of space you, when you've got all that stock as well as records it's like you end up having like a whole warehouse it's a it's a it's a full-time job so i thought you know i, I can't be doing this and doing the label and doing the sound system at the same time it's you know something has got to give the sound system was the least busy of uh, of the lot so i thought you know time to say goodbye to it so you know i spoke to mark about it and mark Ration, who is a good friend of mine and he was looking to upgrade his sound at the time when he came down to london and you know picked it up and you know took it back to leeds and you know he kept it for a while and then obviously you know he needed to upgrade again so he sold it on again but you know that is that is what happened, and you know it, it was just everything was just insanely busy. And also bear in mind that you know I was doing everything pretty much on on my own. You know I didn't really have anyone helping me with the running of the label. Uh, and when you're running a label, you know it's not only it, it doesn't end when you leave the studio and you've got your finished mixes, you know, there's a lot of work to do after that. Bringing it sort of quite madly forward to today and it's like, and you're, you're still uh, involved in the business, you're, you, you, you're doing some like producing and you're involved in some releases. Is I, I live in America at the moment, which is like, you know, a story in itself, quite, quite a bizarre place to be at this point in time, but you know, it's where I am at the moment. Um, and I've got my own studio here and that, in itself has been a kind of learning process for me because as we've talked about even though you know I've been involved in the business for a long time and been going to studios for a long time I never really got involved in the technical side of it the engineering side of it the mixing side of it too tough because you know it's a whole world exactly you know I left that to um, Dougie when I was working with Dougie or with Russ um, on occasions when I work with Russ and you know he's still doing um, some mixing for me now and, and I have to say Russ has been unbelievably helpful um, in helping me set my studio up here um, and has been uh, very, 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 very generous in giving me a lot of his knowledge, which, you know, I'm extremely grateful for. There's a couple of tunes um, which are out at the moment, one with Danny Red, uh, one with Donovan King J, which, you know, 100% produced by me. Um, they were voiced at Conscious Sounds when I was in London a couple of years ago, um, and they were mixed by Russ. I've got more tunes coming with people like Reality Soldiers and Culture Freeman, Ilodica, Diggory Kenrick, um, a French horns trio called Natty Princess Horns, and, you know, just solo instrumental stuff of my own as well. So, you know, I can spend as much time as I want to on a tune now with no need to rush it and, you know, go back to it and think. Yeah, that's so time-consuming when you get stuck in the studio. Well, listen, Steve, we've been talking a long time now and it's, it's really interesting, like, hearing all these stories and obviously I'm so interested in kind of how things started and there's just so much stuff we could cover, but it's, it's been great 
kind of learning about the kind of journey you're on. And what, what I'm doing at the end of each of these uh, Life in Dub interviews is I'm asking um, all of my guests the same question, which is I'm, I've got this book, the Life in Dub book, and I'm asking people what they want written next to their name, just something kind of associated with it or whatever. So I was wondering if you've got something you'd want written next to your book. So I've got it open, Jar Warrior. <laughs> what, what, what would you want associated with your name? Yeah, well, I, th- I think I would say that, you know, I've, I've always, been influenced by original roots music vibes and that is what I'm trying to get out in my music you know not to have it sounding uh, like it was made in 1976 but just to keep those original vibes and give them a modern twist and always keep roots at the core of what I'm doing you know I will never sell out I will never do anything other than what I've always done which is try and create quality roots music I don't know if I've always been successful maybe I haven't but you know that is what I want to do and that is what I will continue doing as long as I'm able to nice great well Steve Joe Warrior thanks a lot for joining me on the podcast it's, it's been a real treat yeah well give thanks for having me and it's been a pleasure talking and i hope people enjoy it and you know continue to stay safe and be careful out there you know difficult times we're living in thanks again for joining me and john warrior for this 16th episode of the life in dub podcast don't forget to subscribe to life in dub so you can keep up to date with each new episode If you have any comments or suggestions about the show, as usual, just email me, vibronics at gmail.com, or find me on social media. And I'll see you all again in two weeks for the next Life in Dub podcast.